This message comes from NPR sponsor Dave's Killer Bread, and they're ready to rock the bread aisle. Dave's Killer Bread is a leading organic bread for a reason, killer taste, texture, and nutrition. This isn't bread. This is Bread Amplified. I'll never forget. The first time I took my parents, they came to the studio. My my dad looked around, and, and my mom sort of opened doors and, and peeked under desks. And my dad looks around, he says to me, no showers? Who is going to come here? And I thought, <laughs> I thought this, this is not a battle worth fighting. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, how two women with no background in fitness set up some stationary bikes, dimmed the lights, boosted the music, and built a multi-million dollar business called SoulCycle. Okay, so imagine going to an electronic dance show, right? The music's throbbing, the lights are flashing, the DJ is twisting the knobs on his computer. Everyone is moving to the music, turning and swaying and sweating. And oh yeah, you are doing all of this on a stationary bicycle. That basically is SoulCycle, an indoor cycling business that grew from one little studio in New York in 2006 to nearly 90 today. And when it sold to a larger company about 10 years after it started, the founders walked away with $90 million each. And if you haven't heard of SoulCycle, well, it's one of those fitness companies that people get super excited about. Like, if you have a friend who happens to be a devotee, be careful, because once they get started, they can go on and on about the celebrity-style instructors, the scented candles in the studio, the merch, the music. And that sense of loyalty, of near-tribal devotion, is kind of what the founders of SoulCycle envisioned when they set out to build it. Julie Rice and Elizabeth Cutler met in New York in 2005. At the time, Julie was working as a talent agent, and Elizabeth was doing acupuncture and real estate on the side. They were both in their 30s, and both of them married with young children at home. But they were also hungry to start something new in their lives. Here's Elizabeth. After our second daughter was born, I started to really have this strong entrepreneurial urge. And I I really wanted to dig into something. And I kept on thinking about the the struggles that I had gone through in having the kids and how much weight I had gained and how difficult it was for me to to lose it. And and I joined gyms. I went everywhere. I begged friends of mine who belonged to other gyms to take me as their guests so I could try the classes. I really wanted to find my class. And I couldn't find it. What What was wrong with them? For me, what was going on in there, it just wasn't inspiring. People would play the same playlist over and over. They would phone it in. It was super boring. It was, I remember somebody yelling at me, pretend there's an 800-pound gorilla on your chest. And I thought to Mm. myself, are you really kidding me right now? Techno techno music, instructors that looked at themselves in the mirror. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, the bright lights and bad smells and people walking in and out of class. Exactly. So, uh, Julie, did I guess you kind of found yourself in in kind of a similar situation because you had moved to New York from from California, um, I guess in in two thousand two. What what was going on in in your life at the time when you guys met? Well, I, I really missed what I had had in Los Angeles in terms of an exercise community, 
exercise for me. It was social. It was a huge part of the way that I connected with people. It was a big part of the way that I spent my time bonding with my friends. We would go hiking. I can think about some of the most important moments that we had together, having really deep talks, going up a mountain and then solving the problems, coming down the other side of that mountain. And I got to New York and all I could really find were uh, gym classes and boot camps where you were definitely going to burn some calories, but not get much more out of it than that. And, and Julie, when you, um, I mean, you were a talent agent mm-hmm. at this time, before you, long before you meet Elizabeth, do you remember starting to think, I think I want to start a business? I, I, d- I definitely didn't think, oh, I want to start a business. But what I did think was in Los Angeles, There was some boutique fitness that was starting to happen. In New York, nothing like that existed. And I had been, I had taken some indoor cycling classes in Los Angeles, and I had been, I I really actually loved it, and I had found a community in a small studio there. And because I had been in a business where, you know, I built businesses out of people, I kept thinking about how this could be different and how could this could be marketed differently and positioned differently and what would make this unique. And it could be about empowerment rather than about putting pressure on yourself. And so it wasn't that I just had this need to start a business. I had a need for a very particular business. It was really more about a need for a product than it was, oh, I just want to be an entrepreneur. But Julie, a lot of people have ideas, right? Like, like I've walked into like kombucha shops and thought I could do a better kombucha shop than this, you know. I, and then I might talk to a friend and say, you know, I, I just I kind of want to do a kombucha shop. But then I just move on and I keep doing my shows. Like, did you start to say to people, I I'm really intrigued about like doing a cycling studio? They have these in LA, and I think I kind of want to do one. Would is that what happened? Did you start to talk to people? I did. I started to say it first to my husband, who told me I was insane, and then to my parents, who told me that I had good health insurance, and then to a couple of friends who told me that, you know, they loved the gyms that they belonged to, and why would anybody ever do something like that? Mm. Um, But it was one of those things that just would not go away for me. It was one of those things, especially because exercise was such a daily ritual of mine, that every day I would wake up and try some sort of an exercise, leave feeling unfulfilled, and go back to thinking about this idea again. And remember, what made it one, uh, you know, one notch even more difficult was that I was talking about charging people to pay per class for this, whereas gyms already offered cycling classes. Mm. They were on the buffet. They were included in memberships. Exactly. There were plenty of them around. Hey, I got my cycling class in my gym. Exactly. And Elizabeth, in parallel, a parallel universe you were living in, also in New York City, not knowing Julie, were you thinking, hey... We could. I. I want to do a cycling studio, or was it much more sort of abstract than that? No, I was. <laughs> I was thinking that I wanted to start an indoor cycling studio because what I felt like I could find on that bike wasn't out there, and I started researching what it would take to open one, and I. I started talking to a couple of friends. And one of my friends said, you know, I really don't have the heart to tell you this, but you know spinning is over. Over? It's over. over. In 2005, it was over. It was over. It had it had been really popular in the 1990s for outdoor cyclists, um, but had not, and it had mainstreamed in gyms for sure, but that trend had kind of fallen off, and he just said, there, you'll never make anything happen out of this. Mm. Were either of you guys like, I don't know, a little bit embarrassed when, when you would talk about it and people kind of sort of say, eh, 
that, that concept just doesn't make sense to me. I was not embarrassed. I was for sure doing this. This was a calling. This was definitely happening. Hmm. My husband told me I was going to ruin my life and I was going to work 24-7. And I said, I, I, I'm going to handle this. It's going to be fine. I was, I was also not embarrassed. I had such conviction in this idea that this was something that was definitely going to work. My husband was definitely embarrassed, and I can remember several times before we went out to dinner, he would say, please don't talk to my friends about this. Don't talk again. about this weird thing. Yeah, but I think for me, you know, it was meeting Elizabeth that really allowed me to take the leap. Yeah. I'm, not a, I'm, not, I'm, not as quite, I'm not quite as convinced that if I had just been on my own that I wouldn't have been, you know, li- like you at the kombucha shop. But, but the two of you ended <laughs> up meeting? How did that happen? How did you even get connected? Well, I had been taking this woman's class, an intercycling class out in East Hampton, and I tried to find one in the city. And eventually, I ended up uh, as a guest at a class at at, uh, one of the clubs uptown in New York, which is near Julie's apartment. And I met this teacher that I liked. And I talked to her after class. I said, listen, I'm thinking about starting into a recycling studio. And she said, it's really funny. There's another woman who takes my class on Saturday. And she's been talking to me about the same thing. We should go to lunch. So she said, you should contact her? And and, and what happened? Like, she gave you her number? We went to lunch. All three of us. uh, And my husband. So the four of us had lunch. Yeah. And Julie and I started talking. And we just clicked. Why? What did you like about her? We, we... you know, we very quickly discussed. We both had uh, babies that were the same age, and we made some small talk. And then, I think we quickly got to a conversation that was that was even more philosophical than just what we wanted to open. I think that we fundamentally saw two different things. I think we both felt that exercise did not have to be torture; that it could be joyful, and that by creating a place that was chic and that was aspirational and turning our instructors into more like spiritual gurus than being drill camp sergeants, uh, we felt that we could really create something that people would value. And then at the same time, we could create a new product. I mean, there was no marketplace in New York at the time. There was no opportunity to take pay-per-class fitness. At the time, we were talking about 2005, there were some yoga studios. But other than that, you know, the model for gyms, and this is a lot of what we talked about, we talked about how the traditional gym model was take your credit card, charge you for a monthly membership, hope that you don't show up so that then you can, you know, add more people's memberships, you know, trying to understand what the utilization rate of your gym was. We said, you know what, we're so confident that we can make people feel good, that we are going to challenge ourselves every time. Every time you come, you'll have a great experience because you'll have to pay all over again to come back. So you're at this lunch and 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 what? You say, hey, let's do it. You just like leave the lunch and you're like, let's do this. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> yes. My head. Okay. Yes. So so we leave so we leave the lunch and you know, I leave, I get in a cab, my cell phone rings, and Elizabeth says to me, Okay, here was here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna look for real estate and you research towels and I'm gonna call you on Thursday. And true to her word, Thursday the phone rang, and she said, I found something on Craigslist. It's on West 72nd Street. You should meet me there tomorrow. And on Thursday, we met at the studio, at what would become our first SoulCycle studio. It was an old dance studio that they were subletting for five years. We could take a sublease on it. The entire thing was about 1,200 square feet. And we walked through, and we looked at each other, and we said, it's perfect. You signed a five-year lease like Pretty soon after? Yes. Within three weeks, we had had the lease signed. 
how for okay let's just pause for a sec because i want to break this down a little bit like did you do formal partnership agreement did you do all that stuff or was this still pretty much handshake like you and me are partners and we're just going to figure it out so at lunch that day the woman that introduced us the uh, Ruth, our, the fitness instructor, our third partner, and I were friends. And so we decided at the end of the lunch that we each brought a really particular skill set to the business. And she was going to be the fitness instructor, and she was going to help us to find other teachers and help us mm. to create the program because neither of us had ever created anything in fitness before. And Elizabeth was going to work on all of our design and all of our business and all of our technology. We were gonna work on the branding together, Elizabeth and I, since we had such a similar vision. And I was gonna work on the people. I was gonna do the PR, I was Mm. gonna train the studio staff. And so that's the way that we were gonna divide the business. And Julie, did you have any money at that time? Did you have like wealth or personal, you know, like a huge stash of cash? So ironically, I I had actually no cash at all. Um, One of my, very close girlfriends had just gotten married and she had one of the great last the, the last great rent control apartments left in New York City. Hmm. It was a first floor walk up over Harry's Burrito on the corner of West 71st Street and Columbus Avenue. And she was nice enough to say, you know what, for, for as long as we can keep the lease, why don't you take the sublet? And so it was 900 and something dollars a month. Wow. And um, that apartment really allowed me to take that kind of a risk. We had a five-month-old baby at the time. So uh, you quit your job? I did. Well, I worked. I worked while we planned SoulCycle. We met in right. January. We met in January, and we opened SoulCycle in April. And and did your husband Julie? Did he continue? Did he have a job at the time? It was actually perfect timing because he had just gotten a new job. He had just figured out a way to switch careers. We had this nine hundred dollar a month apartment, um, and I remember at the time once we made the decision to start SoulCycle. Uh, we cut up our credit cards, and on every Sunday night, Spencer would hand me an envelope with $200 in cash, and he would say, here's your money for the week. Huh. And so, you know, I remember, you know, with my baby folding up the, the the stroller and taking it on the Crosstown bus, and, you know, Starbucks wasn't really an option. I drank a lot of coffee at home, and all of those things, it's it's amazing. It's, 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 it's amazing how quickly $200 can go in New York City when you're walking down the street every day. But but we did yeah. it. We really, we, we, we did it because it was something that we really had, well, I really had conviction of, and, and he's always been really supportive. Hmm. And, and so, okay, so Julie, you were at 200 bucks a week, and uh, Elizabeth, did you, did you guys have any money? Um, I had ha- I had bought a little uh, studio apartment and I had recently sold it, so I had about a hundred thousand dollars. And then Alan, my husband, had a great job working at this investment bank called Lehman Brothers. <laughs> um, and so I said to him, I said, I really want to start this business. And he said, I, I get it. If you want to do it, I you know, let's we can do it. So we took two hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars and and started and started SoulCycle with that, and we built the studio out inexpensively. Uh, we built a, a, a website, you know, reasonably inexpensively. I feel like we got a lot done for two hundred and fifty thousand yeah. dollars. And the worst thing that could happen was that in five years, Julie and I could look at each other and say, you know what, well, we tried it and it didn't work. Yeah. But we would give it. We would we would commit to that period of time. So in that way, it didn't really feel like a huge risk. Yeah, that's. What I'm curious. You, when you sign a five year lease, what do you what do they want from you? How much do they want? Like six months rent? Like how does that work? I think we gave them three months security. 
uh, and the rent on the on the studio was five thousand dollars a month. Oh, so that's this is the Upper West Side, New York. That's not bad. Well, it was hidden in the rear lobby of a former <laughs> mortuary, so <laughs> it was yes. not a very fancy location. Yes. You and then what? Like how? I mean, you had to start of get the bicycles and get furniture, and like that must have taken some time, right? It took a little time, but it really didn't take that much time. There wasn't a huge build out to do, which one is one of the things that we liked about the space. And our front desk, our original front desk, had no access to it. So you either had to climb over it to get behind the front desk or vice versa, or you had to walk through the studio to get behind the front desk. It was it was very... Uh, we built for, we built from Ikea. Ikea. You know, <laughs> we... we um, and we had, a, we had a huge mural on the back wall that was reflected in the mirror that was of a, a road, probably Texas, like one of those roads that just goes straight into the horizon. And we thought that that was like a metaphor for the journey of getting on the bike. Oh, and we planted some bamboo outside the window so that in the press release we could write that we had a Zen garden. Oh, I see. I got you. Okay. <laughs> I forgot about the bamboo. <laughs> and how did you come up with the name Soul Cycle? It was neither of us. We had been thinking for a long time. We had a lot of really bad names. And then yeah, we had like been what? thinking. For what were some of the names? Cycle, NYC. They were not good. They were not good at all. And I kept on saying to my husband, I really, I kept on describing that the, the feeling that I wanted to have when I was on the bike and when I got off the bike. And he got out of the shower one day. He's like, what about Soul Cycle? What and, it was like that? You just yes. said, what about Soul Cycle? Yes. Yes. It huh. was like that. You could have paid a branding company hundreds of thousands of dollars. He was just like shaving in the mirror. And it's like, what about Soul Cycle? That's what happened. Before you even open the doors, like in this period of time where you're like between when you sign the lease and when you're building it out and building the IKEA furniture, and did the three of you like sit around and say, "This is going to be huge. We are going to French. It's going to be all over the country. It's going to be massive." Like, was that your ambition, or was your ambition to just make this one studio and see what happens? All three of us were ambitious. I don't think you can ever say we weren't ambitious, but. When Elizabeth and I first saw the space, we went across the street to Starbucks and we wrote our business plan. And our business plan was that if we could see between 75 and 100 it's people 100, a day. It's 100, Julie. It's always been 100. I always thought it was 75. I really <laughs> 100, 100 people. No, but so, you know, we wrote on the back of this napkin, which Elizabeth has framed in her office, and it, it, it shows that if, if we can see 100 riders a day, you know, that we would have enough money to, you know, pay our rent, to pay the minimal staff that we have, to keep the lights on, and have a little bit of money left over to pay for, you know, people that were helping us raise our children. And that was really our goal. Yeah. So explain something to me, because, of course, SoulCycle was not the first spin cycle studio in the world. They existed, not not quite like they do today. But what, I mean, what was it that was going to make it different? I mean, I know you talk about community, and, and, and I, I get that, but, but specifically, like, was the music going to be different? Was the Were the lights going to be different? Was the... The, the 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 design the like the experience how was the experience going to be so different that people would have to go to soul cycle because they just needed it well the first thing was that we were going to have technology so that people could it was 2006 so hmm. this sounds crazy to talk about now but there were n- very few booking apps out there if any uh-huh. and we felt that in order to become part of someone's life we had to help them plan their weeks so we worked on this booking app you could get on your computer at noon on Monday and you could sign up 
for your classes for the week. And in that way, you would know what you had to look forward to. And the second part was the people who worked at the front desk were trained to remember your name, to ask about your vacation, to remember if you liked your water, room temperature, or cold. We wanted people to cross the threshold of of uh, the studio and feel like they had gone from the crazy you know world of hustle that is New York City and that they had walked into a place that was fun, that was a sanctuary, and that was a place that welcomed everyone. Before you even opened up, how how did you determine what you would charge? Did you look at like like, w- did you look at, like, how many people you needed per day and rent? And, like, how did you come up with the number? And then what what initially were you were you charging? We started at $27 a class. Hmm. Uh, we thought about it as two cocktails or inexpensive personal training because we, we thought it was actually important for people to pay for the class because people value what they pay for. And if they pay for something, then when they walk in the front door and they participate, they're going to bring something different than if they aren't paying for it. And Julie, what was the idea to just like open the doors and put some balloons out and hope people come in? Or, or did you, how did you get even get people to, to know that this was going to be there? So... We did a few things. We we made postcards and we went door to door. I remember pushing my baby carriage around the Upper West Side and sort of, you know, making friends with doormen, hoping they would let me in and put flyers in mail rooms and asking other business owners if it would be okay if I left some postcards near their counters. Mm. But then we had one other plan, which was when we were all done building the front desk and we'd saved enough money so that we had enough of a run rate for a year. Elizabeth looked at me and said, "Okay, we have $2500 left over. What do you want to do for marketing?" And so we decided that we were going to make a T-shirt. At the time, people were just starting to come around to the concept of swag. And we printed this yellow camouflage T-shirt with the logo of the wheel on it. And, I, and it said Soul Cycle over it. And I remember taking the first T-shirt out of the, that batch. And I looked at Elizabeth and I said, you know, one day it's not even going to need to say Soul Cycle. It's just going to be like the Nike swoosh. People are just going to know what it stands for. <laughs> and we were like, yeah, yeah, it is. That's definitely going to yeah. happen. And so we, <laughs> yeah. decided, we decided that we would make 250 T-shirts and we would try to get, you know, the 250, you know, coolest people in New York City to wear them so that there could become some sort of brand recognition. Looking back on it, it's kind of funny to think that 250 of anything could make an impact on And so we put on cute outfits and we thought, oh, great, today's the day that we're going to deliver the package to the editor of Glamour, thinking that somebody was going to let us upstairs to hand deliver yeah. a package. <laughs> sure. I mean, little, little did we know that we would now spend the next two weeks in cars getting, you know, rerouted from, from front mail desks to back alleyways where you're allowed to actually drop off packages that may or may not ever make it upstairs. Hmm. So then uh, you, I guess you, you finally get ready to, to, to open. That's right. Yeah, April 26, 2006. And I'll never forget, uh, the first time I took my parents, they came to the studio, my my dad looked around and, and my mom sort of, you know, opened doors and, and peeked under desks. And my dad looks around, he says to me, no showers, who is going to come here? And I thought, <laughs> I thought this, this is not a battle worth fighting. When we come back... How Julie Rice and Elizabeth Cutler grew that no-shower bike studio into a big business, why they sold it, and what it was like to leave it all behind them. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M. 
committed to protecting healthcare workers globally. 3M employee Chris knows that healthcare workers, like his daughter, may need to get up close to provide patient care. He's working hard to direct high performing personal protective equipment to hospitals and hotspots so she and nurses like her can be protected while caring for their patients. Hear their story at 3M.com slash improving lives. 3M science applied to life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Don Julio Tequila. Don Julio Gonzalez didn't just farm agave, he worshipped them. He harvested each agave individually, plant by plant, only handpicking the agaves at optimum maturity. And his legacy lives on today through his exceptional tequila, Don Julio, a life devoted to tequila making. Please drink responsibly. Don Julio tequila, 40% alcohol by volume, copyright 2021, imported by Diageo Americas, New York, New York. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. So it's 2006, and Elizabeth Cutler and Julie Rice have just opened their first SoulCycle studio in New York. And they're facing a problem that many brick-and-mortar businesses face, getting people on the street to actually take notice and come in. So Julie and Elizabeth, they had to get creative. Elizabeth bought a rickshaw on eBay. (laughs) And she spray painted the rickshaw yellow and silver. And we put a sign on it that said SoulCycle with an arrow pointing to the front door because... You put this on the the sidewalk? On the sidewalk because, you know, we didn't have a sign. And so if if you know, starting a business in New York City um, without the ability to use the density of the passerbyers on the street is sort of a disadvantage. And you did not have a sign because why? Because when we had signed our lease, we had sort of, our landlord had pulled a bait and switch. When he told us he had a sign, he meant that it would be on an interior door in the rear lobby of this building. You could not have an exterior sign on the building because the building would not allow it? Correct. It was landmarked. So we had no exterior signage. And so you took a rickshaw and said Soul Cycle this way, and you just parked it on the sidewalk? So we chained it up to a parking meter. Oh, I see. Right. Um, like, a, like a big chain lock like that you would put a, around a motorcycle? We did. And unfortunately, the community board did not really like the rickshaw I, in the uh, middle of the street. Enough. So we would get a ticket for $65 a day for each day that the rickshaw was chained up to that parking meter. But what we what we quickly did was we, we studied the traffic patterns outside because $65 a day was actually a lot to us. You know, some of yeah. our classes had nobody in them and some of them had two people. That could be, you know, the whole price of the earnings of what we made on, on running a whole class. And so we learned that, you know, Saturdays it might make sense to put the rickshaw out there because there would be a lot of traffic walking by, foot traffic to and from Central Park. But maybe Wednesdays around lunchtime on the Upper West Side, not so busy, not worth the $65 ticket. And so we, we would put out our marketing vehicle on days that we thought the returns would be good. And uh, that was that. So so this is a slow burn. People are coming in. Um, and I don't know, was like, uh, Julie, was your husband like, hey, you know, I'm a little nervous. We got this apartment and I got this job. I'm not making that much. And, you know, you quit your job. Like, uh, uh, are you sure about this? Did he ever say that? Well, in, in fairness, it was a slow burn. But the truth is, in, you know, in business years, we started to cash flow pretty quickly. Like how fast? We started cash flowing by the fifth month. So we wow. were positive cash flow by month five. And we stayed lean and, you know, we, we did all the jobs ourselves and we certainly weren't out there, you know, buying expensive dinners, but we definitely began to make money. And we, we also liked keeping it lean because it allowed us to learn every job. 
So we put ourselves in the position of understanding how the website worked, you know, what could work better there, how the what was the uh, functionality of somebody checking in, um, how was it for some, what, what were our clean, cleanliness standards, like how, what did the bathroom need to look like? You hmm. know, we just had to make sure we started doing checklists to make sure that when there was downtime, people were always doing things and because we were always doing things. So you were cash flow positive five months in, which is amazing. So after you know, you start to see people come into the classes and the classes filling up, it becomes apparent you got to open up a second studio. So what'd you do? Well, we weren't quite ready to open up a second studio, but Julie had the idea to open a studio up in the Hamptons in the summer, which was a great idea. Like all the way at the tip of Long Island. Well, because we had a lot of, we were concerned about the summer business. The studio is located in a residential area. And we, as you listen to your customers, you hear them talking about what their summer plans are. And we realized a lot of people were going to be leaving, and we wanted to captivate, keep them captivated with the brand. We didn't want them to get distracted and get interested Uh. in something else. In New York City, a lot of people do migrate out to the East End for the summer. And simultaneously, Elizabeth got a phone call um, from friends of ours who had said that they had heard that there was this old barn that had housed an exercise studio before, and it was coming up for rent that summer. It was a legendary. It was Lottie Burke. People had gone there for 20 years, and then somebody was doing pole dancing there one summer, and that didn't really work out, and it was going to be available. And Elizabeth and I looked at it, and we said, you know what? This is a three-dimensional marketing experiment. You know, we had to rent houses out in, out in the Hamptons to house our instructors and our staff. We had to, but on top of our rent for the, for the actual fitness studio to operate this thing, with our New York City organization, we needed to take houses and rent cars. And People buy- lived illegally on the second floor for the first summer, and they I had bet. bikes. So we didn't get to the cars and the, and the houses until the second summer. Yes, that's true. I forgot about that. We, we were, we were, well, ha- we were housing to. employees in the upstairs we of, were very the studio. Scrappy. But how did you guys manage that when you're trying to run your SoulCycle studio in the Upper West Side and you decide that the next summer, summer of 2007, we're going to open up in the Hamptons? Like, did both of you just like constantly go back and forth and back and forth? We did. We made a decision that, you know, Elizabeth would spend a little bit more time out and run the studio out in in Bridgehampton. And I was going to come back and forth. Uh, we, were, we were actually talking today about how um, our retail operation actually exploded that summer and we had this this older gentleman on the Upper West Side who basically printed, you know, let's say you had a friend's birthday party and you wanted to print 10 t-shirts that said, you know, happy birthday. That's the kind of printing he did. But somehow we made him our printer because our quantities were very small in the beginning. And then slowly but surely, people started to get fanatical about the SoulCycle clothing. And so we would design one collection a month. And I remember I would go to Harvey's office on East, on West 83rd Street. He had a cat that sat on his desk. And I would say, Harvey, you know, I know that I only needed 50, but now I need 250. Can you get them to me by, you know, Friday? And every couple of weeks I would go back, the quantities would increase, and I would load up my car on Friday nights and bring them out to the barn at Bridgehampton with all the new merch. And we would, we'd would we stay up late on Friday nights, and we'd set up the merchandise, and I would stay for the weekend. And then mm. during the week, Elizabeth would run the Hampton studio, and I would run New York, and then we'd get back together on the weekends. I need to take like a I need to take like a break from this interview just because I'm exhausted by the descriptions of this. I mean, you had the studio in New York, the studio in the Hamptons. You were making a line of clothing. By the way, who was designing the, the clothing? We, did. we were. 
Like shirts, just shirts? or like- No, no. So first it started with T-shirts, and then it went to T-shirts and sweatshirts, and then it went to T-shirts uh-huh. and sweatshirts and hats and tote bags, and then it went and to... And the leggings. Don't forget about the leggings. Correct. And then we yeah. um, we branded leggings, and then we went to, um, to sports bras, and then after sports bras, we went to athletic shirts. And I would say by the time the collections really got into full swing, which was probably about three, four years into the business, we were designing about 65 to 125 SKUs a month. Which is unbelievable because essentially people were paying you money to advertise SoulCycle. I always say that the the merchandise at SoulCycle is almost like having to buy the T-shirt from the best vacation that you've just been on. Hmm. My mom still calls me when she sees somebody in a SoulCycle shirt. So I don't, <laughs> I don't have I don't have the heart to explain to her the tens of thousands of people come to SoulCycle a day. Um, but yes, my mother still calls me. I saw somebody in a SoulCycle shirt. Yeah. And so when when so when you opened up in Bridgehampton in the summer of two thousand seven, was it also a slow burn, or, or did people no. know about it? And yeah, what happened? That, that studio was a game changer for us in every way. There wasn't much to do out in the Hamptons. People, think, you know, all the kids were at camp, and you know, people would come out. And was, people are on vacation, and the adults needed something to do besides drink. And so people would do what they did all day, but in the morning, everybody was at Soul Cycle. It started at seven thirty in the morning, and it had, ended at two o'clock in the afternoon. And on the hour, everybody was there, and, and, and that was profitable probably from day one. Day one, and then after that, we came back from that summer and. We had gone from being a neighborhood business to being a full citywide location. Uh, People were taking the subways up from downtown several times a week. People were really coming across the park. Um, We we were like, wow, what is going on? And then we would walk out because our studio was in the rear lobby. We would walk out and we would see the town cars and the SUVs lined up like back to back to back to back and this is before uber so you know fancy people would have their have their cars and drivers and all the cars and drivers were lined up in front of soul cycle and the neighbors were wondering what was going on and everybody was there riding and it was so fun at a certain point i don't know if it was at this point but at a certain point um your original third partner ruth leaves um why why did she go you know there's not much we can really say about it, but what I can say about partnerships is that um, it's just really important that everybody has the same vision and the same work ethic. Mm-hmm. And if, if you have those two things, you, you fight a lot of battles, and then you know your struggle is not internal. Your struggle is more external. And that's really where uh, you know the, the focus needs to be. Um, and you know, Ruth is an amazing teacher, and she continued to teach for us for years. And um, was that was that hard was that hard for for the two of you when 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 that happened? I mean, Julie, she was your friend. Um, was it like like emotionally was it difficult at all to, for that that split? Yeah, I, look, I think it was it was it was very early on in the business. It was we'd only we'd only been open for um, about a year. And um, so it didn't. It didn't feel so dramatic at the time. The business yeah. was the business was very small, and also she she stayed on for several years and continued to teach. You know, the really interesting thing is that you know after that happened, um, Elizabeth and I kind of decided that we were going to really invest in our partnership because we had we had seen partnership not work out, and I think that we really felt like. The success of Soul Cycle was a real combination of the two of us, and so Elizabeth found us um, a business therapist coach, 
Um, and I remember she called me one morning. I didn't even know her that well. We'd been in business together for a little over a year. And she said, you know, I, I Googled in the middle of the night last night and I Googled NYC life coach and I found somebody that we're going to start seeing. And uh, she was like, I'm not going to see anybody that you met on the, met on the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, let me explain to you. I am a very relaxed person. And at 11.55 on a Sunday night, I'm having a full panic attack. I need some help. So I'm going to talk to her. Let me see how it goes. And then if she's good, maybe you'll be up for meeting her. And so, and so that started us down this journey of um, we have an amazing coach that we still work with today. And the person that we met on the Internet, the person that we met on the Internet. Wow. And it, what was amazing was, you know, we really made a commitment at that time to saying, you know, there are going to be moments in this business when you see it one way and I see it another way or, you know, you want to grow another five studios and I don't want to or whatever, whatever it is. But we are going to make those decisions together. We're going to really communicate yeah. about them. And. I think that that was ultimately one of one of the things that I think made the business most successful was our dedication to our partnership. Hmm. Okay, so it, it's I guess around 2008, and you guys decide to open up another studio in New York in, in Tribeca. But I mean, I mean, this was 2008. This is the start of the recession. So where did you get that money to expand? Yeah, it was it was interesting timing. So a couple things happened. One. Um, I checked the bank account after Lehman collapsed and I was, I mean, Alan and I share funds and I was so proud of him because he had, he had sold, you know, when stuff invested, he had sold it. And so I was like, oh my God, there's money in the bank account. It's so awesome because Julie and I need some cash to open Tribeca and uh, I want to borrow $600,000. And he was like, what are you talking about? I've had like the worst month of my life. Are you kidding me? And I said, no, I'm super not kidding you. I'm going to pay you a huge interest rate and you are going to lend me that money. I tried, to be honest with you, I tried to get money from other places. I had a friend that I grew up with that ran a private bank at one of the big, big banks in New York. And it was after the collapse and the feds are funding these banks. And I said, I need a credit line of $3 million. I can start with a million, but I need three. And they looked at me and they said, okay, well, if you put up for collateral, your apartment and equities that equal the same value as the amount of the credit line, then we will lend it to you. And I was so furious. I said, how dare you do that? My taxes are funding you right now. I am not asking for that much money. We are running $10 million of cash from our our, all of our transactions through your bank and you, that you, that is your message to me and they said that is our message to you once you have 60 million dollars of revenue we can help you <laughs> I said by the time we have 60 million dollars of revenue I will not need you I got up and left the room <laughs> I've never forgotten that. it was really stressful and I was so mad um but that's when I that's actually when I called Alan and said, hey, <laughs> I checked the bank account and I, I realized that yeah. there's some cash in there and, and we can probably do it for that. But it was tight. I mean, we when we opened Tribeca, we almost didn't make payroll. We didn't have my we somebody called up to the office and said, oh, my gosh, Elizabeth, do you know we need to buy some toilet paper and, and the credit cards aren't working? And I said, how much toilet paper do I have? And they said, well, we've got about 20 rolls. I'm like, that's great. Well, you better wait till tomorrow to buy the toilet paper. But we never missed payroll, and we always had toilet paper, and, you know, that part that part really worked out well. All right, so you guys, um, in, you know, you managed to open up a couple locations in New York. You're doing well. Around 2010, uh, competitors start to come up. 
including one called Flywheel. And this was started by your former partner, Ruth. Was were you shocked by this? Did it, did it make you nervous? Did it upset you that that happened? Well, when Flywheel opened and they were going to become a competitor in the fitness space, I think rather than sort of freak out about it, which of, of course we did for, you know, the first year or so kind of monitoring the scene and what was going on. And, and there know. were some new bikes that were coming out. There was a bunch of stuff coming on the scene. Yeah, it wasn't just them at the time. I think that, you know, look, we we started a, a, a boutique fitness marketplace and a lot of things were now coming into the market. People had, you know, beyond just flywheel, people had other choices that they could do per, per pay per class. So we were no longer the only option in that marketplace. And, yeah. But we really we really took the opportunity. We, we talked to our coach, um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, and we really took the opportunity to say to each other, you know, who do we want to be? You know, let's not react. You know, we always did things and Many times people thought we were nuts to do them, but we always made the choices that felt good for us. And I think we really just tried to keep our heads down. Yeah. I, I'm I'm really curious about the relationship between the two of you because uh, uh, trying to grow a business is, is fraught and filled with tension. And But it strikes me that that getting a coach to like a kind of like a therapist that you forced yourselves to go and talk to together – was kind of the key that 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 really helped you guys develop your relationship. There's no question that it did. There, I mean, I think that we also um, lived by this this one saying. We always said to each other, "High road, long view." High road, long view. We would never allow ourselves to get down in the mud and get dirty. We would, we would, we would do that if something needed, if, if something was was broken and needed to be fixed. But once we did that, uh, we really kept our eye on what was most important. So, I think that that that's the that's the piece that um, you know both of us decided mattered. And you have to remember. You know, we actually weren't even the stars of this business. We haven't really talked about our instructors yet. The instructors were the stars. They were the face of of the company. Correct. So we were sort of, we sort of thought, let's build the stadium. Let's put these rock stars on this stage. Let's let them sort of, you know, be the faces of and bask in the glory of and change these people's lives. That was really what we were doing. We were building a brand. We weren't, you know, we weren't in it for either of our egos, you know, to the point where we really turned other people into the faces of the brand. So I, I think it was around 2011 uh, when when you sold a pretty big stake to Equinox, to, to the, this huge sort of high-end fitness company. Um, why? I, I mean, you had this great thing going. You were running it. Did you did you need like need that money to to further scale the business? Yeah, we felt like to have someone to have a strategics playbook would be really valuable. We wanted to expand to the West Coast, and we felt that uh, by being able to work with these guys that it would it would allow us to do that. And so we, we did do uh, a partnership with them in 2011. Let's just be frank. At this point, both of you are rich. You know that you are going to have money. And Julie, for you, you, you didn't have a whole lot of money. Was it, I mean... <laughs> That must have been amazing to to know that you were going to be financially secure at that point. Yeah, that that first part of our sale to Equinox was really that that was life changing. 
obviously for me and for my family and you know, be, beyond what we could have ever imagined. And sure. I, I remember thinking, you know, the day that we actually got that wire to come through, um, my, my kids are good. And I, I'll, I'll remember the, the time that I was able to put them each in their own bedrooms. I mean, each child having a bedroom in New York City is a monumental, it's a monumental mm. task, you know. Sure. And so, yeah, it was, it was truly life-changing uh, when, when that happened. Uh, how many SoulCycle studios are there today? 88. Could could that have happened without outside investment, do you think? It gave us the confidence to do it. Right. Uh, the truth is, looking back, yes, we could have done it. Um, you could have done it. Yes, we could have done it. Um, hmm. But it really gave us the confidence to do it. And sometimes that's what you need. I mean, I think that, listen, people always say like, entrepreneurs are such good risk takers. And, and the truth is, sometimes you do take a risk, but a lot of times it's really terrifying. Um, and we had a lot on the line. So... SoulCycle did expand, um, but there. But I guess there was some tension after Equinox took over, and eventually you both divested. You you left the company, uh, and today neither you, neither of you are owners of of SoulCycle, right? Correct. You own you own not a piece of it. That's right. That's correct. Is it weird to to walk down the street in some city and see a SoulCycle and uh, I don't know know that it's not yours? For me, I, every time I see a soul cycle, I still feel like it's a love child and I feel proud of I feel proud of the of the energy that I know is contained in those rooms and what it what it does for the people who opt into that experience. I will say that there are those who said to me when we were getting ready to to do our original deal in 2011, um, you know, selling a business is not like selling a child. I mean, you have children. This is your business uh, in a very detached way. And I yeah. will say that that is super not true. I That's obviously true. did no fact checking uh, as to whether or not the person who said that to me or the people who said that to me had ever started a business because <laughs> it is a child. Uh, in fact, I when we were when <laughs> it's a funny story, we were um, people somebody was coming to us uh, early on in the business and saying you should franchise. And I looked at Julie and I thought, oh, my God, we already have four children between us. How many children do we <laughs> need? <laughs> so we just kind of felt like soul cycle each one of the studios was like a child and 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 when we left we you know we left a piece of our heart there because that's what you do i think elizabeth's right look i think that somebody should write a book for for founders about what it is like to to sell their businesses you know i i think that there's you know there's there's definitely a mourning period there's definitely a pe- there's definitely you know a period where you spend some money and then there's definitely a period where you begin to think about you know what am i going to do next yeah for me um it still is a really significant part of my day and my life it, you know more so as a customer than it is as as somebody who founded the business you know i'm able to go there and sort of enjoy the product that we created for ourselves I- i'm curious cuz a lot of a lot of uh, very experienced and entrepreneurs listen to this show, famous entrepreneurs, but most people who listen are are, are starting out, you know, or they're they're in the middle of it. Um, they're kind of grinding away. And I'm curious if you had to go back to 2010 and you had a crystal ball, would you have said, "Let's try to just do this on our own and not bring in any outside investors. Let's let's keep bootstrapping this thing." I mean, if there were two alternate universes, I would certainly play that out. 
But on the other hand, you know, we never forgot why we started the business. And like we said, we, we really started the business to create an environment for people that was like a secular sanctuary where people could feel safe coming in there and they could burn their cheesecake from the night before or right. they could tap into something tribal on that bike. And that was why we did it. We never, ever, ever forgot why we did that. Sure, it would have been interesting to kind of play that out. But the thing is, on the other hand, the way that it did work out, we we still got to do all those things. I, I mean, it, it, it must be weird to go from this like fast paced, like really, you know, especially when you were co-CEOs, you had a staff, you had people around you, probably every second of your day was scheduled. There was a team, there was energy. And then like one day you wake up and you're like having coffee in the kitchen and you're like, okay, what am I gonna do today? Like, is it, was it like that? Well, we're busy still. I mean, you know, we tried to catch our breath a bit and we, we actually, I remember saying to Elizabeth on, on the day that we made the decision to leave, I said, okay, but you have to make sure that we get an office together. So at least <laughs> I know that we're going to have two computers and sticky notes and we're going to have a place to meet in the morning. Like I can do this as long as we know that somewhere there's an office where we have two desks that are side by side. And we did it. We took an office and there was definitely something psychological about sort of knowing that there was a place where that we could touch base with with, with each other every day. And I think, I think we're kind of just coming up for air right now. I think, you know, huh. for, for the first time, it's like the two of us can look at each other and kind of, you know, it's, it's like your, your eyes adjust to the light a little bit differently. We were just having a conversation this morning about how, how much the world has changed and, you know, what, what do you think the world needs now? As, as you may know, I ask this question uh, of everyone who comes on the show, and I want to start with you, Julie. How much of, of what happened with SoulCycle do you think is because of your intelligence and your skill and how much because you, you just got lucky? It's interesting, you know, in thinking about the next time around, now that you know so much, it turns out that, you know, the lesson that I would tell people is that ignorance is actually bliss, right? We made so many decisions, we made so many mistakes, but we just kept going because we didn't know any better. Now you know how to look at all those Excel spreadsheets and P&L and all that stuff, and you can make yourself crazy. But I think at the time, you know, what we didn't know helped us, and we just trusted our gut, and we went. And I don't think anything about it was lucky. I think the only lucky thing was that Elizabeth and I bumped into each other. Hmm. Elizabeth? I mean, how do you top that? <laughs> not that I'm topping it's not because this is not a competition. Um, I think it was lucky that I got to meet, that we got to meet each other, that I got to meet Julie and that she got to meet me. I think it was lucky that we got to have these incredible riders who inspired us every day and get to work with people that we loved and it was extremely high touch um we always had our our, our office attached to a studio we never stopped using the product and um and i think you know that kind of effort um that we what that we brought to it created i guess you could call it like a certain kind of cumulative magic that happened over the years that everybody participated in and created Elizabeth Cutler and Julie Rice, co-founders of SoulCycle. And while they're no longer part of the company, Julie and Elizabeth have kept up their partnership with a new investing firm called LifeShop. And by the way, do you remember how Elizabeth says that her husband used to give her a hard time about opening a cycling studio? Well, even as SoulCycle really started to take off, he still had his doubts. I could tell he was getting mocked at work because one day he comes home and he's like, if you guys ever make $10 million, I will run naked through the streets of East Hampton, New York on a Saturday in July. 
Did he lucky he didn't make the bet? Uh, he made the bet. Well, we never, oh. we never, we never made him uh, make good on the bet. You never made him do it? No. Okay, let's do it next summer. <laughs> Alan is. We we are gonna have him run naked through the streets of Ham- of the Hamptons. It's gonna be a video podcast. You're such a visionary guy. I like this. And please do stick around because in just a moment, we're gonna hear from you about the things you're building. But first, a quick message from one of our sponsors, Microsoft, who wants you to know that the newest member of the Microsoft Surface family, the Surface Pro 6, has up to 13 and a half hours of battery life and an 8th gen Intel Core processor, so you can work for as long as you want to, wherever work takes you. Hey, thanks so much for sticking around because it's time now for how you built that. And today's story starts about seven years ago in Columbia, South Carolina. Gabby Goodwin was about five at the time, and every day she went through the same routine. My mom would put pigtails in my hair, and for every pigtail that was in my hair, there was plastic barrettes on every single one of them. I think you know what Gabby's talking about, and usually she had one of these plastic barrettes in 10 of her pigtails. But me, when I was little, I would be running around at school, and my mom would pick me up, and my hair would be a complete mess. I would say, you know, Gabby, what happened to your bows? Like, what were you doing? That voice, of course, is Gabby's mom, Rosalind, who started to get really fed up that her daughter's barrettes kept coming out of her hair. And so one day, Rosalind actually went on Twitter to complain about it, just to blow off some steam. I didn't think anybody would respond. I got off Twitter, came back on probably in about an hour, and had all of these responses from moms who felt the same way. All these moms saying, yes, our daughter's barrettes are falling out too. And we're wasting tons of money replacing them. But Rosalind wasn't necessarily looking to solve this problem. She was working full-time as a healthcare lobbyist, and she had no interest in starting a business. But a couple of weeks later, as I was styling Gabrielle's hair, I mumbled under my breath, somebody needs to make a bow. And she jumped out of the seat and said, Mommy, are we going to make a bow? And so every single day after that, Gabby would ask Rosalind the same question. When are my bows coming? When are my bows coming? When are we going to make my bows? When are my bows coming? She was so insistent. So Rosalind figured, okay, since Gabby is so into it, maybe we could just do this as a kind of science project. We'll work on a design for a barrette and see if we can make just one, just one barrette. So first, they drew out a design with two faces so you could see a pretty decoration no matter which way the barrette was turned. And each face has teeth and craters to trap and gather the hair. So you're basically creating this sandwiching mechanism to make sure the hair, it doesn't slip out of the hair. So Rosalind looks at this design and she's thinking, hey, you know, this isn't half bad. Maybe, maybe we can make a prototype. So she gets the number of a couple of engineers and she calls them up. And you could just kind of hear them sigh, like, oh, God. <laughs> and they said, ma'am, listen, you got 15 minutes. So she goes to meet with these guys in North Carolina. And at first, things do not go well. The engineers are looking at this design of a hair clip, and they're just not getting it. And I said, well, you know what? I'm going to run to my car, and I'm going to go dig in my back seat. I promise you there's a standard barrette that has fallen off of Gabrielle's hair. And sure enough, I dug in the back seat of my car 
found a standard barrette, brought that back in. And at that point, Rosalind used a mannequin to demonstrate how a standard barrette could just fall out of your hair and how her and Gabby's design worked a lot better. And as soon as I did that, the light bulb went off. And they said, ma'am, we think you're on to something. So these two engineers agreed to help her make the prototype. They found a manufacturer in China. They made an initial run of 500 bows. And in early 2014, Rosalind and Gabby put them up for sale on their website. And in like 20 minutes, they got their first order. We get our first sale and we're like, this is actually happening. Like, oh my God, we're in business. And they sold out all 500 barrettes pretty quickly. So Rosalind and her husband took out a few loans to fulfill more orders. And last year, they became profitable for the first time with over $100,000 in revenue. Gabby is now 12 years old and is the CEO of Gabby Bows. And she even goes around the country sometimes giving talks about how to be a kidpreneur. Anybody can be a kidpreneur as long as you have the courage to run a business. You can be four years old and have a business. That's Gabrielle Goodwin and her mom, Rosalind, founders of Gabby's Bows. And if you want to learn more about the company or hear previous episodes, head to our podcast page, howibuiltthis.npr.org. And of course, if you want to tell us your story, go to build.npr.org. We love, love, love hearing what you're up to. And thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please do give us a review. You can also write to us at hibt at npr.org. And if you want to send a tweet, it's at How I Built This. Our show was produced this week by James Delahousie with music composed by Ramtin Arablui. Thanks also to Mia Venkat, J.C. Howard, Noor Kudsi, Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkinpour, and Jeff Rogers. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This from NPR. The news moves fast. Listen to the NPR News Now podcast to keep up. We update stories as they evolve every hour. So no matter when you listen, you get the news as close to live as possible on your schedule. Subscribe to or follow the NPR News Now podcast.